You can be turning in your Bible to Psalm chapter 96. Psalm 96. This is, this morning is a psalm of praise. Psalm 96 is actually a part of what has kind of been known as book four of the Psalms. And that kind of covers Psalms 90 through Psalm 106. And it, this is a, a, a section of the Psalms that emphasizes how God is above us. So not like above us in like this horrible boss who constantly lords it over you, but above us in the sense that he's higher than us in understanding, in holiness, in glory. He is higher than us in the sense that he is eternal. Our lives have a beginning and end. We celebrated birthdays in May this morning. Everybody talk up here talked about the day they were born. Eventually, every one of us, unless the Lord comes back first, every one of us will have a day marked that is the end of our lives. That's not like God. God has always been. He is eternal. He's above us in His holiness, in His righteousness. Even in my best day, even on your best day, you fall short. I don't have to convince you of that. I think that's pretty, pretty plain as you know yourself. God's holiness in Scripture is well documented, at least according to the author of Psalm 96. And so book four that this is a part of in the book of Psalms, it seems to focus on these things in particular, but also not just the truths of God's transcendence and holiness and righteousness and perfection, but how do we respond when we see those things? How, what do we do when we see God in all of his splendor? Now, there's no author. If you, you can look at Psalm 96 in your Bible. There's not an author that's listed, as there often is for other psalms, but it contains the middle verses of a psalm that David sang when the Ark of the Covenant was being brought back into Jerusalem. You can see that in 1 Chronicles chapter 16. And so that being the case, we would attribute this psalm to David. Let's read it together. Psalm 96. Let's pray. Lord, do a work in our hearts today. We have just finished singing a new song. And we are now being instructed to do that very thing. Sing a new song to you. And Lord, it's, it's not to showcase our creativity or our talent. Lord, it is to showcase the beauty of your majesty, the depth of your glory. And so may our hearts resonate with that truth, with that desire today, your glory. In your name I pray. Amen. Now, I don't know, as we were reading the psalm, I don't know if you caught it, but there are what I would describe as widening circles in this song. So, have you ever, anybody ever thrown a rock into a pond? Surely you have. Especially if you're a boy. I mean, that's like the first thing. You go to a body of water, the first thing you do is pick up something and throw it in it, right? So when you throw a rock into a pond, what happens? It makes ripples, right? So it starts small, and then the ripples begin to grow. And I think that there's something similar that's happening in this psalm. And let me point it out to us. 
the glory of God is kind of what the main focus is. And at the beginning, it affects God's people. It affects the people of God. Sing to the Lord, like tell of his salvation. Only God's people can do that. But then it moves on from just God's people, and it says that it affects all the nations, all the peoples of the earth. And then by the end of the psalm, all of creation itself is affected, right? Trees of the field are singing. The oceans are roaring in praise. So it might start with a small group of God's people, but in his plan, the end is all of creation, every person on the planet knowing that he is God, that he is in charge. And so it might start small, but the effect is global. The first few verses of this, as I said, instruct God's people. So if you have been saved by the grace of God, this message is for you. These first three verses especially are for you. You have been told because you've received salvation to go and declare his glory among the nations. Now, if I asked you for a definition of what the word declare means, what would you say? You wouldn't say that it's a whisper, would you? You wouldn't say that it's a note that you pass through class, like that's not declaring anything. Declaring something is like standing up here on a stage or out on a mountain or somewhere high so that people can hear you and saying it with a loud voice. Yesterday, I got to marry Ethan and Kelsey and we stood in front of everybody and they declared their love in front of more than 100 people. And God was honored in that. They declared it boldly so that everybody could see. They didn't ask me to go marry them in secret somewhere. We did it in front of everybody. So if you're a Christian, this is not just a me and Jesus kind of relationship. Now, don't get me wrong. Jesus is with you. God is for you. But it's not just me and God kind of a thing. We're supposed to declare it. If you've received his salvation, shout it from the mountains. We sing a song here. It says, shout it. Do we, do we share the gospel that way? And I, when I say shout it, I hope you understand, I don't mean in a belligerent, rude kind of a way. I just mean with joy and love for those who are hearing. Declare it boldly. That's why baptism is meant to be a public event. We declare with our actions that we follow Jesus now. We have died to our old self. Now we follow Jesus. Baptism isn't meant to be just done in a little room by yourself and the preacher. It's meant to be shared with all the peoples. And Psalm, this 90, Psalm 96 tells us another way to declare it, by singing it. Now, I'm not going to ask you if you consider yourself a good singer because most people don't. You know what? It doesn't matter. There's Guys, there are no American Idol judges in this room. No one is evaluating your singing capabilities. But what we are told to do is to sing it. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord. Now, it might be an unpopular opinion, but I enjoy learning, learning new songs. I, I had the tremendous privilege of leading music here for 15 years. And I loved learning new songs. I loved teaching new songs to the church. Now they need to fit the right criteria of doctrine, right? That's the first thing. 
But I'll be the, also the first to argue that some of those traditional hymns that have been around for hundreds of years ought to still be sung by God's people today. And praise the Lord, we do that very often here. We sing some of those old generational songs. You know what, though? If we believe that God continues to save His people and continues to bless His people, then new generations are going to sing new songs to Him, aren't they? So our grandparents look at maybe some of the worship songs today and they don't connect with those. And we maybe look at the songs that our grandparents sang in worship and don't connect with those. That's why we sing a variety of songs. Now this message isn't about music, but just so we understand, God has given each generation new songs to sing. Do you know why? Because His glory can never be exhausted. The glory of His praise can never be fully fulfilled. And so we're going to be continuing to sing new songs, I think, throughout all of eternity. I think we get this. Wives, let me talk to you for just a moment. If your husband, he said, I love you on your wedding day, and then that was like the only thing he ever said to you again, I love you. That's sweet, and it'd be good for you know a while, but if that's the only way he communicated love to you, you might kind of start to question how much he really loves you. It's good, but it might seem to just be a habit at some point. He's just saying that. He always says that. He doesn't really mean it anymore. Some of, some of us husbands need to say it more, honestly. But if that's all we did, it could kind of maybe seem to be just this habit that there's no thought to anymore. New expressions of love from husband to wife, from wife to husband, are welcomed. Right? They, they should be encouraged and they help emphasize how the marriage relationship continues to grow and continues to flourish. It's full of life. There are, you can just flip on the radio. I mean, on your, way, on your way home, flip on the radio to almost any radio station and you're going to hear a love song from a guy to a girl. Because that's how, that's how we express love so often. There's new ones being written every single day in every genre that you can imagine. And surely the relationship and the love between a husband and a wife is worthy of being sung about. But if that's true, what could be more worthy of singing about than the holiness and righteousness and love of God? So new songs are going to come out regularly for that reason. Sing to the Lord a new song, all the earth. When God does something incredible, and we see this all throughout history, I gave you in your notes just a handful of examples of this, but when God does something incredible in history, most of the time people almost, it's like they don't know what to do except write a song about it. Now, we're not all geared that way, but for the Israelites, they wrote a song, they sang a song about it. Look at the book we're studying now, the book of Psalms. These were, for the most part, meant to be sung in the church. But look at this list with me. One of the earliest songs that we have recorded is Exodus 15. Moses and his sister Miriam sing a song. After they cross the Red Sea and the Egyptian army is drowned in it, they sing this song of God's provision and faithfulness. In Numbers 21, the whole nation of Israel, after wandering around in the desert, they sang a song when they found a big well of water. And they could replenish their 
their water supply. They sang a song out of thanks and praise. In Judges 5, in a really unusual and interesting situation, Deborah sings this song after their enemy is delivered into their hands. After Sisera is defeated with a tent spike through the temple, she sings this song. Then Isaiah, in his fifth chapter, is really a song to the Lord, illustrating how Israel has forgotten God and needs to turn back. And then probably the most telling of all is a scene that John captures in the book of Revelation in chapter 5 where it's this picture of the throne room of God and the hosts of heaven are bowing down at the throne singing a new song to the Lamb who was slain. Who was finally, He was the only one who was able to open the scrolls. Finally, The Redeemer has come, and the song was repeated, holy, holy, holy. You've heard it mentioned. This idea of all of the earth praising God really carries through this whole psalm, Psalm 96. But I think it's also pointing to a day when salvation, the gospel, the glory of God would go far beyond just the nation of Israel itself to all the people of the earth, everywhere. The whole earth would be filled with His glory. It's pointing forward to the grace of God in Jesus Christ. It's pointing forward to God saving people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. So, here's the question. How does all the earth sing a new song to the Lord unless they have experienced God's grace? Now, Romans 1 is clear that God is evident and there's a general kind of revelation and grace that's given to the whole world. God sustains the earth by His power. But you can't speak about salvation unless you've experienced it yourself. And that's what's happening, I think, in verse 2. Sing to the Lord, bless His name, tell of His salvation from day to day. You can't Sing a song with conviction about the saving knowledge and power of God unless you've experienced that salvation yourself. Only those who've been saved can sing like this and bless His name. And there's something that's kind of, I think, implicit in this song. It's sort of hidden a bit at first. It's this. If we're going to tell of the salvation of the Lord, then we have to speak of Jesus. We have to speak the name of Jesus. Acts 4.10 reminds us His name is the only name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved, by which we can be saved. If we're going to talk and sing about the greatness of God and the salvation of the Lord, we have to speak about Jesus. His name has to be what's on our tongues. And so we glorify God with a new song by singing praises in Christ Jesus to Him. Verse 3 says that we're supposed to declare His marvelous works among all the peoples. Marvelous here is a good word. It's appropriate. It means excellent, superb, wonderful. And here's my question for you believers today. Is there anything more excellent, more superb, more wonderful than the gospel of Jesus Christ? Is there anything worthy of song more than singing about Jesus? I I think we need to read this this way in Psalm 96. The thing that we sing about 
And we declare to all the nations is nothing less than the excellent, wonderful, marvelous message of salvation in and through Jesus Christ. So when it says, sing a new song to the Lord, declare his salvation from day to day, sing of it, tell of it, it needs to be about Jesus. That's our message. And then it moves into, in verse 4, why we do it, why we sing new songs, why we declare it to the nations. And it's simple, because he's worthy. Because he's worthy. He's the only one worthy to write this, these kinds of songs to. And then verses 4, 5, and 6 in Psalm 96 explain why he is worthy. Look at verse 4 with me. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. I think there's a correlation here between the greatness of God and how he's supposed to be worshipped. How he is to be worshipped. Now, those of you who have kids you probably pretty vividly remember the birth of your first child if you were there. I, I know some of you are old enough that you husbands, you maybe weren't even allowed in the room when your wife was giving birth, um, but most of us were able to be a part of that together as a couple. And I think we probably remember it very vividly. Now picture something with me. Picture as, as, as a husband, my wife is in the delivery room. I'm in the waiting room while she's giving birth. And the nurse comes to me and she says, Rod, congratulations you just had a baby boy. And my reaction is like, thanks, cool. All right. Okay, you would expect something more. Then let's say 10 minutes later, the nurse comes back into the room and she says, oh yeah, by the way, I just want you to know, you know, you guys are sticking around for dinner tonight here at the hospital. I just want you to know that they're serving grilled cheese for dinner. And, I, and my response is like, whoa, are you kidding that's fantastic. Grilled cheese. Not, not the right response, right? Something's, uh, something's backwards here. Not appropriate. I should be moved by one news more than I am another news. I should be. Now, don't get me wrong. Grilled cheese is awesome. I love grilled cheese. Okay. Um, but it's something I can get all the time. Like I could go home and make a grilled cheese for pretty much any meal I want. Here's what I'm getting at. If God is great, then he should be praised for that reason. He should be praised greatly. My response to the greatness of God ought to match what I understand of his greatness. And I fear that myself and many fellow believers get more excited about grilled cheese. But our response, our excitement level should match appropriately. And when we see God for who he is, when he's given us salvation to sing about, we can't get as excited about grilled cheese anymore. It's not a good thing to do that. He should be the one who receives our first and our best. So if God is so great, then he is what we should be most excited about. May our worship reflect what we truly value and what truly excites us. Because here's the truth. God, Yahweh, is real. Not those other no gods, not those other fake idols. And that's what he says in the end of verse 4. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. 
for he is to be feared above all gods. Verse 5, for all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. There's, uh, he's not covering anything up. He's not pulling any punches here. He's saying that there is a real God and there are non-real gods. There's one God and everything else is fake. He deserves worship from the entire earth because he made it. He's not like the pagan gods. Why would you fear a rock? Why would you fear a stick when the one true God made those things? It's silly. It's foolish. I, I'm able to catch some of Jason's Sunday school class some Sundays, and they've been working through the book of Isaiah. And I've just been struck at how funny Isaiah is when it comes to idols because he just wears them out doesn't he? If you've been in that class, you know what I'm talking about. He just wears out idols in his, in his book. He's constantly, and it goes from, from little like little snide comments that he makes about how silly they are to just full blown, like you can't, you can't do this. You can't worship false gods. You can't do it. It's foolish to trust an idol over the real God. Now I'd venture to say none of you have any idols on your windowsills at home that you go home to and you bow down to and pray to? Probably my guess. Funny story. A few years ago, uh, we, we teach our kids this idea about what an idol is. And in, in the, the Bible, especially the Old Testament, it ranges from just a big tall pole to actually like carved images. And so we've been teaching our kids not to bow down to those because God is the one true God. And, and so we're pushing the, sh- the cart around through Lowe's or Home Depot or something. And we're in the outdoor section where they've got all the stuff for your yard and all that stuff. And we're going by, and I don't remember which kid it was. There were probably two or three or four at the time. And they said, oh, hey, they sell idols here. And we're like, oh, no. Oh, someone, someone was shopping for the idol, and one of our kids pointed it out. But you know what? We may not literally bow down to an idol that we get at a hardware store. But how many of us knock on wood? How many of us chalk just stuff up to luck? How many of us attribute things to karma? We may not bow down to an idol, but you know what? We can't give God's glory away that easily. If God is who this psalm says that he is, then we shouldn't give his glory to luck or karma or some kind of superstition. Uh Uh-uh. All of the other gods, David says here, are worthless idols. If the Lord made the heavens and the earth, then he's the only God worthy of praise. The only God worthy of writing new songs too. And he should be greatly praised and have our best When his people see idols as they really are, these thoughtless, voiceless, mindless things, nothings, all the nations are affected. That is what set Israel apart. They didn't set up idols, and that's why there were such strict rules given about intermarriage with other people groups, is because they so quickly moved to worshiping other gods. All those other gods are 
ineffective and worthless. They are nothings. And when we value God above everything else, the nations take notice. People see. Move into verse 7 through 9. And these verses show what happens when the people of God worship Him the right way, worship Him as He deserves. Every nation, all peoples, including family groups, people groups, who are not of Israel, are told to ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Now, ascribe means to assign or attribute or credit something to. So all nations are to recognize God as Creator and Redeemer and then respond appropriately. That's the call here. So when we give unto the Lord glory and strength, it's not like we're attributing something to Him that He didn't have before. You see that? When we're called to attribute or ascribe the glory due His name, it's not like we generate this glory that He didn't have prior to it. We're just recognizing something that's already there, that He already has. Notice how verse 7 and 8 repeats that phrase three different times. Ascribe to the Lord. Give credit to the Lord. Attribute to the Lord. I think this is significant. Because worship is described in these verses as us bringing something to God rather than us coming to get something from Him. Do you see that here? Because we usually think of it the other way around. We come to church to receive. Now, don't get me wrong. There are innumerable blessings of being with the people of God. We spent the Sunday school hour thanking God in our adult classes, thanking God for what He's given us in Christ, in the body that He's blessed us with here, in friendships that are so meaningful that extend into the hard areas of life and lift us up. We do receive when we come to church, and that's what we think of. We think of receiving knowledge through the teaching or encouragement from the body or answers to prayers maybe. And again, those are things that we receive from God in His goodness when we come to church. But worship in Psalm 66 is pictured mainly as us bringing offerings to God. We bring Him things like our time, sometimes our finances. We bring Him our attention. We bring Him our worship. We bring Him our surrender, our service, our resources. But I think more than anything, we bring to God ourselves. All that we are, all that we say and do, all that we have, this is an offering thankfulness. We do that. We give this offering in response to the greatness of God that we see. This is what we do when we see and believe the gospel rightly. We attribute glory to His name. We give God the glory as we more fully recognize the splendor, majesty, beauty, and strength that He already possesses. And in the splendor of His holiness, it says all the earth trembles before Him. No idol, no earthly thing causes this same kind of reaction. Only the holiness of God. Now, I have a lot of t-shirts at home like undershirts and and t-shirts that are white that I've had for a while. 
And you guys who, who wear white shirts for a while, you know that you can hold it up and we can call it white. But if you got a new pack of white t-shirts and you held it up, the ones that we thought were white don't look so white anymore, do they? They're not really that pure and holy. Compared to the Lord, every one of us look like a dingy old t-shirt. Really worse. Isaiah 64 says, like filthy garments, our righteousness is as good as. So a view of God so holy surely causes his people to tremble in fear and respect. And we can look around at the holiest person you can think of. And they pale in comparison to the holiness of God. And probably if you're lifting them up as a holy person, they would tell you that. Think about Isaiah chapter 6. You've heard this text before. It is a view of God that Isaiah received that changed everything for him. He saw the glory of God in the temple, filling the temple up. And it changed everything. He saw the Lord for who he really was. And what was his response? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And then he saw himself for who he really was. And what was his response? Uh, It doesn't say it in the text, but I got to believe he's on his face saying, Whoa, I am a man of unclean lips, he says. I'm not worthy to be in your presence, the presence of your holiness. He says, I'm dwelling a people of unclean lips. None of us deserve this. And yet God in his mercy gave Isaiah this vision and it changed everything for Isaiah. Verses 10 through 13 of of Psalm chapter 96 calls all of creation now to be glad and rejoice in everything that God is and in everything that God has done. Again, we're instructed to bring an offering of worship to God. We're supposed to declare the truth of God to the nations. But it's more than just that. Tim Keller says this, We're called not simply to communicate the gospel to non-believers. We must also intentionally celebrate the gospel before them. I think that's a level that we need to get to. We want to communicate the gospel. That is a necessary part of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. But when we celebrate the gospel together, the nations take notice. When our hearts delight in it, our hearts are glad. And when our hearts are glad in God, our joy overflows in, you guessed it, songs and worship and praise and giving honor due to His name. The day is coming when all of creation is going to declare His glory. Like it says there at the end of 96. Verse 11, Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. The trees of the forest will sing for joy. Why? Why, are, why is the earth going to respond in this way when He comes? To judge. He's going to come to judge in righteousness. And when he does, the earth isn't going to groan anymore. The earth isn't 
going, the fields, the ocean, the trees aren't going to say, well, this is unfair. They're going to rejoice because God's judgment is perfect. Because he comes to judge in righteousness and in faithfulness because that's his character. He can't not do that. He can't judge wrongly. He judges perfectly. At the coming of the king, one day the curse is going to be removed and all of creation is going to rejoice. We groan for that. The creation groans for that, Romans tells us, even now, waiting for that day. They're going to rejoice in it. God is completely just. He's faithful in his great mercy, mercies that is received by turning from sin and trusting in Christ alone. His righteousness is pure. His judgments are right and no sin will go unpunished. And even still, there's hope and there's joy because Jesus took the punishment of sin upon himself. For the Christian, there isn't punishment at the judgment. There is just mercy and grace and peace and there's joy there forevermore. The nations will be glad and rejoice along with all of creation because the merciful and just king will be with them finally. He will be their God and they will be his people. Every genuine follower of Christ will be a part of that. But you know what? The joy doesn't just start when he comes back to judge. The joy starts now at the moment of salvation. His spirit comes in and lifts us up and gives us his peace. God in his great love is still seeking out sinners today and bringing them into a right relationship with him through Jesus Christ. That's the only way that he brings joy, that he brings peace to people. May we marvel at the gospel again and again and spread it throughout all the earth, celebrating it as we go. Martin Luther said, the gospel takes all glory, wisdom, and righteousness from men and ascribes it to, cre- to the Creator alone who makes everything out of nothing. The Lord is great and greatly to be praised. One day the nations will be glad and one day they will sing for joy because the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God just like the waters cover the sea. Psalm 96, I think, then, is an invitation for us to embrace this great cause, the cause that we were created for, the cause of displaying and declaring God's glory to the world through the preaching and celebrating of the gospel in Jesus Christ. When Christians delight in that, when we preach the gospel and celebrate it, our hearts are stirred to sing a new song to the Lord. Our hearts are stirred to bless His name to tell of his salvation from day to day, to declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. It's not a chore for us to sing about Jesus or to speak about Jesus. It's not an inconvenience to spread his fame to the nations because he's what we get most excited about because he is our greatest treasure. So just like Isaiah Christian, you and I, we have been impacted by his love and so impacted by his grace that the gospel just flows freely from our lips and from our lives. And if that's not happening, 
in your life, I would encourage you to spend the, the rest of our time together as we sing a reflection song in just a moment. Spend that time on your knees with the Lord, saying, Lord, show me the reason why I get more excited about other things than I do about you. Because I don't think any of us who claim the name of Christ want to get to heaven and be guilty of celebrating grilled cheese more than the birth of a child. If God has saved you, I hope this is the description of how we live our lives. And if you've never put your faith in Christ alone, He's calling you today to do that very thing. And He's ready to save, to humble, and to grant repentance to all those to her, to, who turn to Him in faith. Let's pray together. Lord, Your name is great and greatly to be praised. We want to ascribe glory that's due Your name. And it's not like we just generate it, Lord. It is there. We just have to recognize what it is. So give us eyes to see today the truth that when you come to judge in righteousness and holiness, Lord, you do it perfectly. And boy, what a day of rejoicing that will be. Lord, give us the eyes to see things for how they really are. To not get more excited about the silly things of this earth than the eternal weight of glory, of salvation. Lord, be our God, and may we be your people, both in spirit and in truth. Lord, as we sing a, another song this morning, may our hearts rejoice and be glad, and may we praise you greatly because you are so great. In Christ's name I ask these things. Amen.